Welcome to One Hour in the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and hosted by me, Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services and Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator. Our community is filled with diverse stories and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are many-fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work, especially in these uncharted days of Zoom meetings and working from home. Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in some strange and wonderful directions. As Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places. Each one of us had just one hour to research a topic. 60 minutes, that's it. We research separately and then come back together to discuss where one hour in the past has taken us. If you're joining us for the first time on One Hour in the Past, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back to the archives to catch other episodes of Historical Adventures. On this episode of One Hour in the Past, we'll be discussing our research into the Family Compact. Let's get right to it and head down the rabbit hole. Enjoy the episode. regular listeners know, we'd like to start off each discussion with a definition of what we're talking about. Today's topic isn't in the regular dictionary, and so our definition of the family compact comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia. The term family compact is an epithet or insulting nickname. It is used to describe the network of men who dominated the legislative, bureaucratic, business, religious, and judicial centers of power in Upper Canada, which is present-day Ontario, from the early to the mid 1800s. Members of the family compact held largely conservative and loyalist views. They were against democratic reform and responsible government. Good definition. It's the, the list is interesting, eh? Like uh, legislative, bureaucratic, business, religious, judicial. Is there anything else? No, I like, pretty much covered everything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about where we ended up. So our research summaries, um, Kathy, you want to go first about where you started and where you ended up? Sure. I started with the, uh, the large red book history of St. Catharines. Very good. Um, and, and wanted to look up to see if there was anything that uh, connected the family compact to the, uh, the city of St. Catharines. Uh, most of it relates to the Welland Canal. And then I ended up with uh, the very last thing I have on my uh, list here, information about the Juvenile Advocates Society. And uh, the Juvenile Advocates Society is kind of an offshoot of the Law Society of Upper Canada. It was for the uh, younger lawyers in training. Right, so like Junior Lawyers Association, that's fun. Essentially, yes. Um, and uh, the very last line 
that I have is that in the mind of the family compact, there was no distinction in society. There was no distinction between society and government. So when the, uh, they, the law society, as an example, says that it will uphold the constitution, they also mean society. They don't just mean the constitution. They mean they're upholding these moral standards in society that they have decided are the ones that are important. So that's where I ended up. This is going to be a really good conversation, I think. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I also started with uh, the story of uh, William Hamilton Merritt and the canal. Ended up at 160 Frederick Street in Toronto. Nice. Who's house and, is that? Any and well, uh, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll figure it out. But <laughs> people who really know their Toronto history probably know uh, where I'm going to end up. But I don't think anyone will be surprised about what was at. And I say what was at 160 Frederick Street. Do well, you I don't know. do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me. I think it's probably cool either way. Okay. All right, well, why don't, <laughs> I just feel so like one hour was just not enough for this. And so I feel like the research that I did was perhaps not as great as it could have been, I guess, if that yeah. makes sense. But I guess our listeners yeah. will be the judge of that. And so let's start with your research, Kathy. Okay. So like I said, I started with the red book, uh, the history of St. Catherine's uh, uh, book that you know, it's kind of like our Bible of where we start with city history. And I was interested in whether or not the family compact had any uh, connection or influence in uh, the community. And there was actually one index reference to the family compact, and it was related to um, some communities in St. Catharines being named after members of the family compact, uh, such as Port Robinson, actually in the Niagara region, not just St. Catharines. So Port Robinson and Port Colburn are named after members of the family compact. Uh, and part of it has to do with uh, William Hamilton Merritt trying to raise money for his canal. And so he was appealing to this group of elite who really liked to, uh, to have their name on things. And so he figured, you know what, if you're willing to give me some money to help build my canal, I'll be happy to name part of a community or a thing after you. Um, and uh, while this wasn't in the red book, I did come across later on in my research a reference uh, to John Beverly Robinson, who was actually quite a well-known member of the Family Compact. He was one of the more public kind of members. Um, and uh, one of the things that he said about the ruling elite, they never called themselves the Family Compact, but what he said about the, the kind of aristocracy in Upper Canada at the time was that they relished he relished the involvement of uh, law colleagues. He was specifically talking about his member, members who were lawyers in government, um, being involved in, uh, especially in the pursuit of material growth through the promotion of public improvements such as canals, roads, harbors, and bridges. And uh, he said that they should preside patriotically over measured planned public improvements. So it was the job of the family compact to, sorry about that. It was the job of the family compact. Was that you or was that me? That was me. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so it was the job of the family compact in his mind to 
um, really kind of set the bar high when it came to uh, the standard for public improvements in the province and how they should support them. And that included things like the Welland Canal was a one that uh, several of them invested money in uh, and supported in government because essentially they're the ones making all of the, the decisions and the laws. Um, so that's where I started. But then I was like, you know what, I need to go back and get a little bit more grounding in who these people were. So I did kind of the, just the basic history research on the family compact. And we've already heard about where the name comes from. They never actually called themselves that. That was kind of an insulting uh, thing that was, uh, that was used against them. And it wasn't even them who, um, who used that name. It was first used by a guy named uh, Marshall Spring Bidwell, who uh, mentioned it in a, a newspaper article in this newspaper called The American Reformer in 1828. And uh, uh, he was very critical of these people. But essentially, we can thank John Graveson Co. Yay, we can thank him for lots of things in our province. <laughs> and one of those is uh, this idea that he brought with him from um, British society that uh, um, he wanted to recreate British society here in Upper Canada. Uh, he's actually a great example of this patriotic um, planned public improvements and naming those things because he named cities all over the, or towns all over the province after his friends. It was a big deal with John Graves Simcoe. So places and, all over Canada. And like Canada. after England, right? Like the map, yeah. the map, like Windsor through um, Cornwall, you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You want to recreate British society here in Canada. And his idea was that, um, you needed, you actually needed to recreate a hierarchical society like Britain in Canada and that you needed an aristocracy in order to do that. And so he had this idea to create this new aristocracy in Upper Canada um, that uh, limited the leadership of the colony to people who had connections. And so that's who these people were in the, uh, the family compact. Um, and they kind of stacked the part of government that was not elected. So there's the legislative assembly that's elected, but then there's the executive branches of those and the family compact stacked those. And essentially they actually had total disdain for uh, anything related to democracy. So they didn't want, they thought that mob rule was bad. So, are you, you um, going to talk about, um, or can I interrupt and mention like the idea that part of part of the idea and part of the frustration with responsible or with lack of responsible government was that relationship between the um, between the executive council and the legislative assembly. So the solution to solving that that little problem, little tiny problem, was having the legislative assembly elect members to the executive council rather than having the governor appoint members right. to the executive council. So yeah. that like that one distinction changes everything. Yeah, so what I, you're right. What I didn't mention is that those people on the executive branches of those things, the judiciary and the uh, legislative assembly, um, the executive of those were appointed by the Lieutenant governor. So he appointed all of his friends essentially and people who he thought were worthy to be on that. Uh, and they became the family compact. 
uh, and they're main, they were very, very conservative, like ultra conservative, and totally against democratic reform. They, they, a lot of them were loyalists, about half of the family compact were uh, the next generation of loyalists who had come to Canada during the American Revolution. And they had seen firsthand this idea of how uh, what they would have called the mob can control and overthrow a government and they didn't want to see that happen. And so they were completely against anything that even smacked of that. Uh, and so they really just stacked everything, not just those places, but business and um, any place really that had any influence was stacked by that. And then they were also very keen on making sure that they owned all the land in the province because in order to vote in Canada, you had to own land. So if you can control who gets land, you can also control who votes. So not only have you controlled the unelected part of the government, but then you're also starting to control the elected part of the government. Uh, and so it was very insidious and it really kind of layered into so much of upper Canadian society at the time and they were totally intermarried. So everyone was related to everyone else in the family compact in some way, whether through marriage or through birth. And not just private land ownership, but land owned by the church. Right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, increasing, so increasing that uh, pool of land owned by the church. Uh, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and so uh, one thing I did learn that I didn't, I probably knew this, but hadn't really thought about it was this, there were a bunch of isms <laughs> in my research that I came across. And one of them that I hadn't really um, read before that I can recall is loyalism as a thing, like as a, a, a philosophy, which apparently is a highly conservative ideology rooted in preserving British norms and rejecting democratic influences. So we think about the loyalists who came to Canada as a group of people that were all about preserving British uh, British government governing style in in um, in wherever they lived, and so they came to uh, uh, the what became Canada to try or, to preserve that. Or they just picked yeah. the wrong side in the revolution and kind of evacuated, right? For sure, but you never think about it as really radical. Whereas no. this really yeah. sounds very radical. It's about you know preserving British norms, but also at the same time rejecting democratic influences. Whereas a lot of people thought, like, I mean, think nowadays a lot of people would look back on the loyalists with kind of a romantic eye to it. And they would say that the loyalists were all about democratic influences because they they preserved their right to be able to, to speak for themselves in the government that they decided to have. But loyalism is kind of opposite to that. <laughs> and these guys who were in charge of the family compact and who were running this family compact uh, were really about uh, really conservative ideology, very Tory and conservative. Um, and this was the political tone in Canada after the War of 1812 to about the middle of the, uh, the 1800s. Um, and a part of that, which I thought was another thing I didn't really know a whole lot about was that apparently after the War of 1812, if we go back to this idea of controlling all the land grants, um, they actually tried to ensure that Americans who came to Canada, other than their friends, couldn't own land. So it was very difficult for Americans to get land 
uh, in Canada right after the War of 1812 because these members of the family compact were actually controlling who was giving out land. And so and um, also from from some other research, if I can just add as well, yeah. the imperial government kind of stoked those fears of foreign ownership. Yeah. So you've got like the local sort of upper Canada level of the, the family compact saying, well, we want specific control. But then you've also got the imperial uh, and the colonial office, you know, s saying to the governors, don't you dare let Americans own land uh, because yeah. the they were so fearful of uh, any sort of foreign control of any kind of um, colonial um, assets and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. It was insidious because not only were these people like connected amongst themselves, but a lot of them were connected to the aristocracy in England as well, because they had been connected before the American Revolution um, through the aristocracy and then they just moved here and we're, there was still that connection. And then of course they're all, you know, friends with John Graves Simcoe and anyone who came after him uh, with the same ideology. So then I was interested in knowing, okay, what did this all mean? And I did a little bit uh, to see like, what were they really controlling? So um, they controlled the uh, legislative and executive councils, as I mentioned, they controlled government appointments controlled land grants, which also I've mentioned, which they gave out based on who they were friends with. They also controlled the Church of England, the Bank of Upper Canada, the Canada Company, and the Law Society of Upper Canada. So we've pretty much covered all of it. Uh, but interestingly enough, they weren't completely unchecked. Their uh, decisions could actually be undone by the Lieutenant Governor. So if John Graves Simcoe early on before the War of 1812, John Graves Simcoe could have said, you know what, I don't agree with what you're doing and I'm gonna re you know, go back on what you've already said. So there was some checks, but, uh, um, but they all were real cronies and yes men of the Lieutenant Governor. So uh, there wasn't very much that was undone <laughs> in that and regard. You, you know how you get the <laughs> Lieutenant Governor to say yes? you name a, a port after him. And there's right. Lieutenant Governor Colburn with a port named after him. It's been, yeah. like right in 1833 as they're third, finishing the canal through to uh, Gravely Bay, they say, hey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and these people all loved to have, uh, they loved pomp and circumstance. Like you don't become the Lieutenant Governor because you just want to sit in an office and never talk to people. Like you go there to do that job because you want to be a public figure in government. You like that attention uh, and you want to be seen to be doing good in the world. And having your name on large public monuments and places is a great PR move, essentially. <laughs> so that was interesting. And then, um, it was interesting in that same kind of vein, uh, vein of research I was doing, I found out that uh, even though they were all about what they saw as law and order, they, show, they actually didn't have a, uh, any aversion to uh, breaking the law if they believed that the survival of the colony was at stake, which totally makes sense if you have a loyalist uh, kind of background, you could totally see that uh, you are willing to do what you need to do to preserve the state and what their idea of the state is. Um, so for them, in many parts of, especially kind of like 1820s to let's say 
1840, uh, they deployed violence against uh, political opponents, sometimes in political meetings and sometimes in marches. Uh, and these were the days still when you voted in person with your hand up, you didn't get the private ballot. So uh, violence at uh, a political meeting where you might be physically casting your vote in public is, you know, it's not gonna make you want to, to vote against the, uh, the agitators, right? So, uh, or the, um, the enforcers, I suppose you could call them. So I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> so law and order, as long as it's my law and order, if it's not, then I have the right to enforce my law and order on you. <laughs> uh, and the same so, goes for uh, religion and finance and right. like it's not just uh, it's not just like uh, judicially, but it's financially, economically. Yeah, for sure. And uh, um, and then it was helpful that they controlled all of the other parts of government. So. Uh, because they controlled the magistracy and the judiciary, uh, when their enforcers were out there breaking the law in the interest of preserving their idea of the state, they went unpunished. <laughs> this sounds so familiar <laughs> in, in history in general. Yes. You go and you look across history as a whole, like this is not unusual to Upper Canada in the mid 19th century. Um, but it's really interesting that this is a part of our history that probably a lot of people don't really realize. Um, and a great example of this idea of um, uh, violence going unpunished was uh, the Tykes Riot, which happened in 1826, which I'm not sure if you're going to talk about this or not, uh, but I'm expecting that you're going to. Uh, essentially, a group of uh, young, uh, depending on how you look at it, hooligans or not <laughs> members of the family compact well kids of the family compact i guess you could call them a bunch of young men stormed william lyon mckenzie's office newspaper office of the colonial advocate in york in toronto and threw all of his type in the lake so essentially was it the lake or the river they threw it the in? lake the lake okay um, and they went unpunished, essentially. They totally destroyed this guy's house and his newspaper office and were actually like witnesses saw them and like they totally like fingered that guy and said, we know it was this person and this person and this person. We saw them and totally went unpunished um, because William Lyon Mackenzie was very outspoken against the family compact at the time. So that's a great example of... Uh, um, controlling enough of the government and the law that you can pretty much do whatever you want, uh, legal or not. So I kind of didn't stay in that vein of things. I didn't go into the, uh, the rebellion in 1837 and anything like that. I did kind of touch just a little bit on the Durham report that came after that in 1839, which uh, the British government sent uh, Lord Durham to Canada to investigate what the heck was going on over here. <laughs> there was a rebellion here and a rebellion in Lower Canada yeah. as well because you know it just wasn't just Upper Canada that had this problem. In Lower Canada they had the Chateau Clique which was kind of a French version of the family compact, a little bit different ideology but uh, basically the same kind of rebellion happening all re related to responsible government so the British send Lord Durham here and he does a report condemning the family compact. He actually says some pretty 
uh, condemning things about him. Like he did not um, temper his report in any way at all to be nice to these people. Like clearly they must have hated him while he was here. And uh, um, he said some pretty damning things about the family compact and then recommended that they merge Upper Canada and Lower Canada together uh, through an act of union. And when they did that, it really watered down the family compacts control because um, Lower Canada being larger than Upper Canada had more seats in the joined parliament than uh, uh, than Upper Canada did, so they had a lot less control. Although they still had tons of control, and one and one executive and one governor. Right. Yes. Exactly. Um, and then on top of that, there was political reform at the time. Like this was a real time of big change. And then immigration uh, from the British Isles was also starting to dilute uh, the number of people. Like it, when it's a small community, it's easy to create a clique like that. But when the community is becomes really large and diverse, it's a little more difficult to do that because you can't control everybody all the time. Um, and then also other isms were starting to uh, impact loyalism. Um, so the Orange Order, which came about because of immigration from other parts of the British Isles, the Orange Order started to grow in Upper Canada. Not that they were in really any better, honestly, but no. um, but there they watered down the uh, uh, the amount of power that the Family Compact had, which I had never even thought about before. And then um, industrialism and commercialism also started to um, water that down because people wanted to be successful, right? And they didn't want to be held back. You know, it's easy to be held back when you're first an immigrant to the country. You're, you know, literally eking out a living out of the forest and building your cabin. But once you've been a couple generations in Canada and you've got a beautiful property, you're very successful with your farm and you want to grow your, uh, your wealth, you don't want someone holding you back. You don't, you, uh, you might not have had time to deal with it when you were, you know, literally cutting down trees to survive, but uh, later on you have time and you have the energy to be able to, uh, you know, to make your way in politics and to try to influence politics, I think is really the thing. So anyway, um, but interestingly enough, this article actually says that the smart family compact members saw this coming and were able to adapt and they were still influential in Canada and I would say well actually something I read said they were still influential in Canada up to the end of the Second World War wow. but I would put it even later than that personally right. but I mean I didn't read that much for this but my my gut would say that they were influential that probably some of them still are influential people that are, are descended of the family compact members or of that idea so then I went on two tangents from here one was the Canada company because I read about the Canada company and I was like what the heck who are these people in the Canada company uh, and essentially it was just a land colonization company uh, it was founded by John Galt and people would recognize that name because he has a whole town named after him um, and it was established in 1824 and essentially they bought 2.5 million acres of land from the government for like doesn't seem like a whole lot of money but i suppose it would have been at the time uh and then they decided to and then they used all of this land to give it out to sell it to 
they were kind of land speculators, so they sold this land to essentially the people they felt should get this land. Um, and uh, they were not very popular with a lot of people because they only wanted to give out land to their friends, essentially, um, and people that were the right people. And they treated immigrants really, really badly. Um, and so uh, that wasn't great. And then, of course, the um, Canada Company supposedly was all about uh, um, this whole land going to the right people, but then they never enforced that people had to improve their land. So if you were one of these people that owned a lot on each side of the lot that was sold to whoever, you know, William Hamilton Merritt, <laughs> who lived in St. Catharines but owned a piece of land like, you know, Kitchener. yeah, in Kitchener, and never improved his land and built his part of the road. If you live on one side of this lot or this side of the lot and there's no road in between, you're going to be very angry about that. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so it did actually create a lot of resentment. The, land, the Canada Company was not particularly popular with the general population. They lost most of their power after the Act of Union. And um, who was on the board of the Canada Company? The same people who are on the board of the Bank of Upper Canada. The eight. same people who are on the board of the Welland Canal Company. And that's a lot of inside information, isn't it? It totally is. And of course, they also have access to government or to money, right? Because yeah, they're, because they're the executive council. Yeah. Uh, yes, for sure. It's like insider trading, essentially. Oh. <laughs> so interestingly enough, though, the Canada company sold the very last of its holdings in 1950. Wow. Oh. So they continued to operate in some way or another past the Second World War. So that's pretty crazy. That is wild. Yeah. What was the government control of the Canada Company in 1950? Do you know? Like what? Like because often it would be like government shares would be majority on companies yeah, like that. Uh, I don't. I didn't look into that. No, I really cool. only looked in a little bit to the Canada. It would company. be like. Did it remain private or was it a government, you know, thing? And where did that money go? Like that's crazy. My guess is it remained private. I don't know. <laughs> I actually don't want to dig. <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing is that the family compact kind of went underground a little bit after the 1840s. <laughs> right? And so it's the same with like the Canada Company. After the Act of Union, they, it, it specifically said in this article I read that they became less conspicuous. So essentially they were still doing the same thing, but they weren't as overt about it because they didn't have that same obvious control of, of everything, of society, essentially. Uh, and then the second tangent I went on was the Junior Juvenile Advocates Association, or Juvenile Advocates Society, because I came across it in the, uh, the reference about uh, William Lyon Mackenzie's um, Types Riot, the Types Riot. Um, and so then I was like, who are these guys? I've never even heard of this before. So I was really interested in what is this junior advocate, ju juvenile, it's not even junior, I want to say junior, but it's juvenile advocates association or a society. Um, and so I found an article that was written in the um, journal for the Canadian Historical Association uh, by a guy named uh, G. Blaine Baker. This is a great article about this group. It, there are not a lot of articles written specifically about some of these aspects of the family compact from what I can gather. Uh, and this association is very connected to the Law Society of Upper Canada. 
So these are not lawyers yet. They're the people that are going to become lawyers. And a good chunk of them are family members of the family compact. So the sons of the family compact members. Um, and to become a lawyer back in the early days, it was not a school related thing. You didn't go to university to become a lawyer. You articled with another lawyer. So you were, uh, and it was young. So 16 years old, you could start articling with a lawyer. And then I think it took four or five years uh, to finish. And then you would uh, basically uh, get your bar certificate or whatever, get called to the bar. Um, and then you'd be ready to practice law. And so in that time period between then, they uh, established this um, ju juvenile advocates society. It kind of reminded me of the movie Dead Poets Society, I have to tell you. If you've seen that movie or that heard that story, it's, uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit about this. These are 16 to 20 year old men, essentially. So imagine what that looks like <laughs> in the 19th century. Um, but they were basically, um, he describes them as a class of legally trained patriotic courtiers. So, um, and they were all about uh, <laughs> this idea of, <laughs> I'm going to quote here on this, the intimacy of distinction and social order. So essentially, it's like a clique of people that had the same social uh, standing they were all, all, most people who were becoming lawyers at that time who joined this association and who were, who joined the Law Society of Upper Canada were this very close knit kind of clique of people. And the, the Law Society of Upper Canada is a whole other really interesting topic that we could go on about. I didn't research a lot of it, but what he talks about in this article is really interesting as well. So that's a cool story too. Um, anyway, so they wanted to, op they, um, there was some debate at the beginning of opening their society up to indiscriminate membership, uh, <laughs> but they said, someone, one of their members said that indiscriminate membership could shut the door against all decorum or improvements. So God forbid you let other people in because that might cause you to uh, have some chaos in your membership. So don't do that. Only the people we want here can be here. Um, so anyway, um, they were all, almost all of the members of this group, at least to start with, were also, had also been students. John Strand, Bishop of Upper Canada, Anglican Bishop, Episcopal, whatever you want to call it. And uh, um, he basically started his own private school uh, and he was uh, teaching the elite of Upper Canada at the time. He was one of the top family compact members essentially, like there's two big guys, John Strawn and uh, um, John Beverly Robinson were kind of the big ones. And uh, anyway, most of the people in this Juvenile Advocates Society were member, were, had been pupils of his school. So they were almost all from the Toronto, York area at the time. Um, and they were told by their mentors, including John Strawn and all of the lawyers that they articled with were members of the Family Compact that providence ordains an orderly, hierarchical, supervised, and benign social structure in which one's standing is largely determined by literary, occupational status, and habits of life. 
So <laughs> it's bizarre. It's so subjective as well. Uh, and so, you know, you can only be a member of this society if you're the right person. So, um, and then they, like I said earlier, uh, where I ended up at the end of my um, research uh, was that uh, they had no distinction between society and government. They felt that government's role was to put a standard on society. And that's what they felt their role was as the, the, the ruling elite in Upper Canada at the time was to set the standard for how people should act and how people should uh, be. But then at the same time, you could never aspire to be them because they wouldn't let you in anyway. So uh, they didn't say that overtly, but it was pretty obvious, I'm sure, to everybody who was there. Um, and religious, political, and social order were all regarded as one. Um, but I did have uh, uh, one thing to mention about the Juvenile Advocate Society is that uh, they were most active in the 1820s. So between 1821 and 1826, they were the most active. Um, and they were the first of several ambitious attempts to socialize law students. Uh, and they were an attempt to replicate and expand uh, the provincial aristocracy. So the whole role of it was to basically perpetuate the family compact going forward into the future. And so it's essentially, they're just creating a whole new generation so that they're ready to take their place as soon as they, you know, as soon as those lawyers retire, um, so uh, John Beverly Robinson, say, being an example, as soon as he moves out of his spot, there's another clone of him to be stuck right back into, uh, into that spot so that you never uh, change. And uh, to be honest, that's why it's stuck around for so long, because these organizations and the way the educational system was designed, especially in private schools at the time, was to just create the next level of that. And so, you know, between 18, let's say 1800 and 1840, when um, provinces were united, that's a lot of people that you're educating to fill those spaces. So that goes on for another, you know, 60 years after that. So it's not surprising that it took the First World War essentially to kind of, according to some documents, the Second World War to kind of break this uh, monopoly that they had on um, kind of the ruling groups in in upper canada and ontario anyway that's where i ended up awesome that's great <laughs> well done uh let's take a quick break if you love our deep dives into local history why not join our virtual museum lecture series yeah join us and our special guests live on tuesday evenings now through the end of june for special lectures on june 16th dr carrie cronin will be on to talk uh, about racetracks and runaway carriages, life with horses in St. Catharines in the 19th century. There are other talks planned for June, and a after a short break, the series will be back in the fall. You can register for our virtual museum lecture series by emailing museum at stcatharines.ca. Lectures run June 16th, 23rd, and 30th at 7 p.m. And then we'll be back for with more talks in the fall. Don't miss out. Register at museum at stcatherines.ca. See you there. Okay, my turn. <laughs> okay, so Adrian, let's hear where you, uh, what you did, what your, where you, uh, your research took you on this crazy train of the family compact. So, spoiler, spoiler alert, 
uh, is pretty similar to your research. And I think that just goes to the fact that perhaps a one hour history of this topic is impossible. One, because a simple straightforward history of the family compact doesn't really exist. Two, they were generally fairly secretive yeah. Uh, and so like we don't have the info that we need to give a, a good, you know, intriguing political insight to their activities. Three, partisan politics was really different at the time. So for me to understand their actions in today's context is really hard because the political system is completely different. So my first challenge was getting away from what I already knew about the family compact, because I kind of wanted to start fresh and I wanted to get away from like what kind of influence they wielded in St. Catharines. And the uh, specific reason that I, I didn't cover that is because I covered it in my recent lecture on the early operation of the Welland Canal in 1830, which I presented just a few weeks ago as our part of as a part of our uh, virtual museum lecture series. So since our research is supposed to be new and takes us in places we might not <laughs> expect, I had to get that out of my head. However, there is a fantastic article titled The Family Compact and the Welland Canal Company that goes into basically the establishment of the canal company from eight, like early 1820s when before like when Merritt was hunting for a route and a charter and basically tells the story of how Merritt won the route and what like won for making his his route the route um, and also how it was financed and anyway so that that's a really cool article we'll put a link to it in the um, in the uh, footnotes to the episode and people can go back and listen to our lecture if you're interested in listening to that lecture you can just email us um, at music at stcatherines.ca and we'll send you the link to that lecture. Absolutely. It's quite enjoyable. <laughs> if I do so say myself. <laughs> it's just a really different angle on the Welland Canal that you don't normally hear about, which is really yeah. interesting. So I did sort of start with that base knowledge and I did kind of return to Merritt's story a couple of times just because I think he's like the touchstone for a bunch of different reasons, but like what, what life was like maybe under the family compact for someone who was not really a part of it, but also like someone who was trying to be a part of it maybe. So I started with Merritt because he's usually regarded as that kind of unofficial member of the compact, at least earlier um, in, in history. And I wanted to see where and how his political allegiances changed. This guy is a bit of a com political chameleon. Honestly, nothing is harder to nail down Merritt's uh, political leanings. And I think that's the, the problem of comparing today's like political system on that of Upper Canada in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, because it's not the same at all. He was uh, an advocate of free trade and public infrastructure projects, no surprise there, but he preferred to limit government spending. He was in favor of temperance or at least higher taxes on liquor, and was a founding member of the Refugee Slaves Friends Society in St. Catharines. He served in both the Tory governments in the 1830s and then the reform governments in the 1840s and 50s. That he, was pretty smart though. Like he totally could see which way the wind was blowing. And yes. I was like, I want to say that's like Merritt's kind of superpower is he could see which way the wind was blowing and was able to seamlessly move in that direction to his own best interest every time. And I think the only way he did that was by one being nonpartisan and two, by not really hitching his... Uh, political ideology to anybody. Like he didn't really have a political ideology. He had big picture ideas 
and the political system for him was the way to get those ideas done not not an end in itself right he might have been that guy that every person he talked to thought that he was on their side yeah so like you know sometimes there's people like that like you can't really pin them down but when you talk to them you're like for sure they agree with me and then you talk to someone with a totally different ideology and they're like totally he agrees with me So he is often described as nonpartisan, as I said. He would skillfully navigate party politics to his own ends. He was a master manipulator, not in a bad way, but just he knew how to work the system and he knew what people wanted, made sure that they got it so that they gave him what he wanted. He was also described as a big picture thinker and his eye was always on projects and not policy. So he often contradicted himself and took specific stances on ideas on how they related to his own work rather than, uh, and his own projects and that kind of thing, rather than, um, you know, like specific ideologies. The only exception to that, I think, would be free trade. And that was just such a controversial and all-encompassing policy for the government at the time. So he really, that was a very somewhat partisan issue but you know he doesn't care who owned land and he didn't care who was um you know who who was on the board of the bank as long as you know he was able to do his like you know as long as they were supportive of his projects he was fine with whoever did what that's all he was really interested in so he was kind of all over the place and so it's hard to pin him down for a political party but he was on both sides often. Um, And even when he was a member of the government, he was often disagreeing with the government. So that worked for when he was team family compact and in the Tory party. And then same when he was uh, uh, in the reform party, he often disagreed and often resigned. And then they asked him to come back and then resign again and, and so on. So, so, and then I was trying to figure out how the family compact came to power. And you touched on this a little bit as well. Like who, why them? Why those people? Why why at that time? And um, and I think it's just like the trick of being in the right place at the right time, the right family, and the right connection to to you know to Simcoe. Like you're a loyalist, you get land, you're friends with Simcoe. That's the equation, right? So I was trying to figure out that equation, and it's hard because there must have been other loyalists who had land and money, but maybe they just weren't friends with Simcoe, or maybe they were loyalists who were friends with Simcoe, but didn't have land or money, you know? So it's like that, that, yeah. that confluence of those three things that gave our small group of loyalism friends the concentration of power. I have a little tangent that I oh, can yeah. share with you here it, that is totally unrelated to what you're saying, but always makes me laugh. John Gray Simcoe had, uh, his wife was Elizabeth Simcoe, very famous woman from can- early Canadian history, a painted beautiful watercolors and that kind of thing. And she wrote a diary. <laughs> and in her diary, she speaks about a lot of uh, kind of society people, uh, most specifically. And this only relates, why I think this is funny is because she's talking about a Powell. So as Kathy Powell. So in the, her diary, Mrs. Simcoe talking about William Drummer Powell, who was a member of the, the ruling elite, says Mrs. Powell was a pleasant, sensible woman. So <laughs> I love that quote from Elizabeth Simcoe, if you want to take it totally out of context. Mrs. Powell was a pleasant, sensible woman. <laughs> but they got around, right? They went and stayed at their house and stuff like that. And so it was really, you were lucky 
Mrs. Powell was the pleasant, sensible woman that got along with John Gave Simcoe's wife, but she also does talk about some of them who she didn't get along with their wives, and maybe they didn't get the favor that <laughs> the other ones did. That very much reminds me of like all the stories around the uh, Charlottetown and Quebec conferences with yes. um, all the the sort of the mothers of Confederation, and uh, you know, there's daughters and friends and mistresses, and they're all kind of hanging on the sidelines and organizing parties and dinners and their husbands, some hated each other, but the like wives and wives, I think there was a couple of sisters as well, wives, sisters, friends, yeah. daughters, all got along and enjoyed each other's company. And like, is it possible that the only reason we had a successful, successful confederation <laughs> uh, in 1867 is because of the women at the conference? Like that's a cool, cool uh, story, so. Well, we didn't even touch, and I didn't touch on it at all, and I'm sure you probably didn't come across too much either, about the women of the family compact. Yeah. So, I mean, they're not ruling the province, but they're behind the scenes, and how are, how are they influencing all this as well? Because they're marrying into all of these families, and, you know, they must have had some influence, but I didn't, I didn't have time to go to that. The daughters would be members of the compact and be married out to... Right. ...students of Strons, right? So, like, you would have that, like, intermingling... Not incest, but just like the group was small yeah, and yeah. they married each other, you know? Yeah. So sorry, uh, I took you on a tangent. Go no, back. that's okay. No, that's great. <laughs> then my, uh, my kind of, I followed the same line of uh, figuring out, like examining how and why and why these people. And so we, I, I looked at executive council under Simcoe, which I won't talk further about because, because we already have. It's interesting because all of that, all of this really comes out of like the fear of the imperial uh, government. And then like the appointment of specific gov uh, lieutenant governors um, or governors is in like direct result of the American Revolution. And it's interesting to see the psychological impact that the American Revolution had on British society around the world. And I just think that's like really interesting. I like it's so it's so distance from distant from us now, but they must have been just so like their entire political world was shaken upside down and they must have just been so fearful. And like, I, I imagine I am in my head, they're neurotic about it. And right. I don't know if that's correct, but they like, I get the feeling that they were so fearful of losing power that they just like, you know, tightened their control at every opportunity because of some, you know, threat of uh, uprising or danger of democracy. It's interesting because, you know, there's a, a phrase that gets uh, tossed around a lot that uh, recently and in history that contents under pressure will explode, right? So it's just another, just another example of the elite concentrating power away from everyone else and then eventually it erupts in uh, revolution or in, in our case, rebellion. It's just interesting. They didn't learn any lessons from the revolution and instead just turned around and doubled down. Yeah, for sure. And it's amazing how long the trauma lasted. Oh, so yeah. Like, we're talking about generations that this impacted. We're not just talking about, you know, 10 years that this, this was, was happening. This went on for almost a century in Canadian history.
and it impacted Canadian history in ways that we may or may not be able to see, obviously. And I, I love that we talked a little bit about the, the establishment of an aristocracy and the replication of British systems and class systems in, in Upper Canada as a solution to all of that. It's funny because when this is all happening, like Simcoe, it just comes to, um, just gets appointed lieutenant governor after the constitution in the United States is, is accepted. Uh, in 1789, and before that, basically, basically, democracy failed in the United States with uh, when Congress met under the Articles of Confederation. So, like, they had to revamp and come up with the Constitution. So, the like everyone watching that experiment, which came out of <laughs> such violence, are like, "Oh my gosh, it's not working! It's not working!" Ah, and uh, everyone expected the Constitution to fail as well because the states were just so loosely tied. And so uh, while the family compact is being constructed, the political philosophy around democracy at this time, not just in Upper Canada, Lower Canada, or around the British Empire, but everywhere, is that democracy is dangerous. And even if it's good, it needs to be uh, monitored and managed and almost babysat by a ruling class of intellectuals, educated people who will help the general population to not destroy itself, I think, basically. Because they know better than everybody Cause, else. Because they know better than everyone else. An exciting time because it's like the growth of modern democracy. But in the same time, the reaction to that in Upper Canada is just yeah. so entrenching of like elite, elitist power. And the, the fear is really interesting. Uh, <laughs> but what's interesting is that just because you were a member of the political elite, like the family compact, doesn't mean you always subscribed or got along with each other. Sometimes they would disagree with each other. And there's lots of specific examples of members of the family compact on different boards of different companies. So often like, the canal company was need needed land or funds and the bank of upper canada would usually tell them no even though they're the same board members so like you'd have to change hats depending yeah. on what you know what board you were working for at that moment you know the canal company board's like oh we need money and then let me take off my hat and put on my upper canada bank of upper canada hat and say nope you can't have any money or like we need land and the same thing would happen and so there would be arguments between board members with different land interests depending on what the project was so like uh, Robinson what really wanted the route uh, from Chippewa to Port Colborne to go through his land but it went through another piece and uh, it was going to be way more expensive so he tried to float more money from the Upper Canada uh, Bank of Upper Canada into the canal company but the people in the Bank of Upper Canada were like no that's not in the bank's interest even though they he, they were all on the boards together and anyway so it's uh they didn't, it wasn't hunky-dory happy time inside the compact either. And it was often a lot of uh, negotiation and trading and that kind yeah. of thing to make sure that everybody I was. That they didn't always get along. Yeah. And there was fighting amongst interests based on whether your interest aligned with somebody else's. And I think the success of that, because like in any other time, that kind of political grouping would fall apart. And often that happened, right? Political parties changed almost every election between 1820 and 1867, I think, like before Confederation, because so many parties were one issue parties. And once the issue was dealt with, they transformed into another one. And so the important part of the family compact, the, it's not just a political string that ties them together. It's that societal string that Bishop Strawn yeah. so 
so generously entrenched in all of them. Because so that, that's to those people, it's harder to disagree with them. Absolutely. I think that's what makes, yeah, if they're your brother-in-law or your uncle or whatever, or your best friend, you know, exactly. Everyone else around them was constantly in flux. They, uh, until the reform party came along, it was hard for people to get traction as a group because everybody was so, it was less partisan and more sort of self-interest. Um, yeah. And not in a bad way, just that's just the, the political ideology that people had. So spent a lot of time looking up political records and like election results. And that used up like 45 minutes of my time, which is why I didn't get very far. Um, and it was really annoying that like political tracking is so difficult because again, the parties are always changing. So Merritt's yeah. political record doesn't fit into my view of, you know, today's politics. Like for example, um, you know, Jim Bradley was a member of the Liberal Party in the provincial legislature for something like 40 years or something like that. Well, in the same period of time, Merritt probably sat for three different parties um, and resigned from a number of positions, right? Not even 40 years. It'd be like 25 years, maybe. It's just it's just a totally different, like apples and oranges kind of thing to think about. It wasn't the uh, same kind of whipping of the political structure oh to get to the way it is now where you know you have there are votes where you can't vote against your government the government you vote with the government lines no matter what party caucus is very strict um and i so, think too because yeah. the electorate the electorate was so much smaller based in a smaller yeah. group of people that those people were often like the people who elected you were probably running against you in some way and so the engagement in the political system was more maybe a little bit more frequent. And so people uh, were responsible more to their electorate. Whereas today, people are more responsible to their party and there's a greater benefit to being being a, a party person, not, not in a bad way, than uh, maybe an independent, be just because of the resources and the, yeah, yeah. the voice that you get. Right? You, would have, you might have had a bigger voice as an independent back, or at least like a, yeah. you know, be not following party line as often um because you were so much there's so many articles in the newspapers in st Catharines about how one month the electorate would gather at, at the pub and and rake somebody for something and then the next month they'd all be friends again and they'd be talking about something else so you were you were more directly responsible to the people electing you so i was running out of time pretty quickly and i wanted to figure out where the money came from and uh, how they played with the money. And this is where the fa family compacts tactics, tactics to me anyway, become so ugly and transparent. Basically in the 1821 parliament, the Tories established a number of institutions and placed their own members, family members, friends on the board. Um, so in that parliament, the Canada company was founded, the Bank of Upper Canada was founded, the Welland Canal Company was founded. And, uh, and all chartered in that time. The fun thing is that they established the Bank of Com Canada through their own legislation in Parliament, wanted to, uh, and the legislation made, basically made sure that the bank was a monopoly, so nobody else can have a, uh, a bank in a similar style. And the board was controlled by compactors, as I mentioned, and they, here's the kicker, they used government legislation to reform in a beneficial way to them. Not even trying to hide the corruption, they would just use Parliament <laughs> to make the bank work for them. And there's sure, a why? lot. <laughs> and I think this, I think we'd find the same with the, uh, the Canada 
company, right? Like you, you legislate that the Canada company can have a charter, but it can only give land to a certain group of people or something like that. Right. Well, lots of people recognize this ridiculous corruption all the time because they didn't hide it. And William Lyon Mackenzie, of course, called them out frequently. In fact, the bank was under continuous attack its entire life. How did Mackenzie get his word out? Well, I thought this was a really interesting connection to our previous episode uh, in season three of One Hour in the Past, where we talked about the printing press. Well, Mackenzie was probably what the other than George Brown, the most important newspaper journalist printer in Upper Canada history, and he was a master of the printing press and a fiery writer. He wa- he loved to attack the government. There was an example of William Lyon Mackenzie. He used to wear a fiery red wig, an example of him like in the legislature, pulling off his wig and throwing it. That's how fiery he was. (laughs) He loved to fight, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, he would have been awesome. So that kind of led me to how he published in 1826, The Colonial Advocate. He'd go on later in the 1830s to rake William Hamilton Merritt for supposed corruption. In, a, in another newspaper he called the Wild Canal, where through 1835, he basically raked merit and the Wild Canal Company board for all of the mismanagement, which was um, obviously uh, not proven later in Parliament. But anyway, this paper in 1826 was called The Colonial Advocate, and he used all his paper and ink attacking the family compact in the bank and how the Tories were personally profiting through government office. Everyone knows that oligarchy despises dissent and criticism. So some sons, (laughs) students, younger members, brothers-in-laws of the Tories um, and uh, the family compact went out to Frederick Street and harassed Mackenzie's wife and family. Yeah. Yeah. So they harassed Mackenzie's wife and family. Mackenzie was away at this point. Otherwise, I'm sure maybe pistols would have been involved. I'm not sure. And they stole... (laughs) The story that I saw that they stole his whole printing press, but maybe they just stole the type. That makes sense. It's hard to run away with a whole press. So they stole the uh, stole the movable type and they tossed it into Lake Ontario. And the instigators were not arrested nor prosecuted, even though they were identified uh, by name, as you mentioned earlier, Kathy, as having participated. And also the story that I saw that senior members of the compact were actually present on the street, even though they didn't. Um, participate in the carrying away of uh, they were like, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. I selfie with these guys dumping their type. My son right. over there dumping the type in the uh... right. Like we'll just stand back and watch you do it. In fact, we probably told you to do it. So people identified senior members of the compact there as well. But not to worry, uh, the types riot, as it's called, didn't discourage Mackenzie. And as I mentioned, he went on to... inflamed him. Oh, God. It must have been... He must have been so angry. Um, and it's it's pretty clear that he was because he went on to make it worse for them. And in 1833, he published another paper naming all of the members of the compact, something like 30 people were named in the paper. And that was really his, um, his big debut into, uh, the, into that particular stream of criticism of the government. And that's really the beginning of the end, uh, pre-rebellion. And can you imagine uh, if you're like, some people liked the attention, like John Beverly Robinson and John Strawn, they didn't mind that people knew they were running the show. 
but there were probably a lot of guys who were like, I just want to be the power behind the throne here. I don't want to be out in public eye, but I want to control things. And then as soon as you put their name out in the public, that's it. Like they're, they're exposed. Yeah. And uh, before it was like, oh, this is normal, right? Like this concentration of all these wonderful, of power in all these wonderful people and families, that's normal. Um, And it was normalized by the Lieutenant Governor and the Imperial government and even the legislature, which the legislature going to do about it. But as soon as you name people and identify the system, boom. We've got this, the beginning of uh, Mackenzie taking on that whole kind of, uh, that whole system. So that's how I ended up at 160 Frederick Street, where there is a plaque dedicated to the colonial advocate and the types riot. Oh, that's so great. What a way to come all the way back around into full circle. (laughs) This was so interesting. Learned so much about... Uh, early history of Upper Canada, which, uh, uh, you know, I thought I knew about the family compact, thought I knew a relatively good amount of stuff, but did not know nearly as much as I thought I did. Same. (laughs) (laughs) But I totally enjoyed the language that people used in their writing at the time period as well. Uh, So that was really super great. Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, so you don't miss any of our historical adventures. We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, connect with us at www.facebook.com forward slash St. Catherine's Museum on Twitter and Instagram at at STC Museum. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. Tune in next time for our rabbit hole research of the Prime Ministers. (laughs) (laughs) One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie and brought to you by the St. Catherine's Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the city of St. Catherine.